What would you do if you got scammed? Would you suffer in silence or would you do something about it? Well, I got scammed once and this is the story of what I did. I'm Justin Sales, the host of The Wedding Scammer, a true crime podcast from The Ringer. And for seven episodes, we're hunting a con man, a guy with a lot of aliases, a guy who's ruined a lot of weddings. And with the help of some friends, I just might be able to catch him. Listen to The Wedding Scammer on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. I'm Tara Palmieri. I'm Puck's senior political correspondent, and this is Somebody's Gotta Win. Depending on what news you consume or your political persuasion, you probably have a very different feeling about the economy. If you're a Republican, you watch Fox News, Newsmax, or listen to Donald Trump, you think that the American economy is shit and it's getting worse and we are losing to China. If you are watching MSNBC and you're listening to White House surrogates, you're hearing cheerleaders about the economy. You're hearing the GDP is up by 3%, that you're seeing unemployment go down, wages are going up, inflation is going down. So you're hearing a very different message. And it turns out that Democrats and Republicans feel very differently about the state of the U.S. economy. And this will impact the election because pocketbook issues obviously have a very big impact on how voters vote. But how they feel often is reflected by, you know, how much money they're spending for eggs, what they're paying at the pump and how much they're making. What's for sure is that the middle class has been squeezed since the 1960s and 1970s, and the cost of living has gone up since the last recession in 2008. But how is this really going to affect the 2024 election? We'll see. We've already seen the economy sort of start to go down in terms of top of priority for voters. Right now, immigration is starting to supersede the economy among Democrats and Republicans. But it's still going to be a top issue in 2024. And White House officials say, by election day, you will see the fruits of Bidenomics, even if they don't want to call it Bidenomics anymore, because it has become a bit of a taboo word. It turns out when you tell people they are feeling something and they're not, it can cause backlash. And this time it did. Now the word Bidenomics has been banned and White House surrogates have been told to acknowledge the economic pain that voters are feeling and then to tout Biden's stimulus to the economy. But maybe Bidenomics isn't such a dirty word. Okay, before I get to that, I just want to talk about some news from over the weekend. 
It's looking like it's the end of days for Nikki Haley. In fact, it may only be eight more days until Super Tuesday, which is on March 5th. Nikki Haley has made it known she probably won't continue past Super Tuesday. But since she lost her home state of South Carolina on Saturday by 20 points to Donald Trump, which was actually better than expected, there were some polls that predicted she would lose by 30 points. The influential Koch network has pulled funding. Um, and at the same time, she was able to raise a million dollars in grassroots support, but that's really just not enough money to keep going. Tuesday night is the Michigan primary. Still hard to see her winning because the base of the Republican Party is with Donald Trump. Staying in the race, though, is obviously driving Donald Trump absolutely crazy. He wants to take over the Republican National Committee. He wants to be the presumptive nominee and be able to raise money in a joint victory fund, probably to pay for a lot of his legal fees. Another thing I'm paying attention to is the impact of artificial intelligence on the election. Ahead of the New Hampshire primary, there was a robocall of Joe Biden's voice telling voters not to go out on primary night and vote for Joe Biden. It was AI. It wasn't him. And it was created by a man who just so happened to be paid by a consultant connected to his opponent, Dean Phillips. Dean Phillips is running a long shot campaign uh, to be the Democratic nominee. But it's obviously very concerning. If this is going to happen in New Hampshire, it could happen in any other state, general election, AI definitely will have an impact on this election. And we should all be careful of disinformation. Now let's dig into the real state of the economy and how it will impact the 2024 election. Ron, thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. Um, You know, this conversation started a while back in, I think, around December ahead of New Year's because we were both on set on the Stephanie Rule show. Uh, It was a special and you were trying to make the point over and over again that the economy is not as bad as everyone is saying, right? Um, You know, you hear it from the right-wing media, right? If you're listening to Fox News, you're thinking, oh my God, this country is going to shit, right? You hear (laughs) it from Donald Trump. But at the same time, you are hearing it from from voters, from middle-class voters, independents as well. And those concerns are real and they cannot be pushed aside. You're very bullish though. You think the economy is doing really great. And for me, what I've seen is that the cost of living has exploded and I don't think that the wages have caught up to it. So I'm hoping you might be able to explain how people are going to start to feel a little better about their situation. Well, they're already starting to feel a little better. Most of the sentiment surveys that we've seen have, have, have illustrated a pronounced upturn in consumer sentiment. They are feeling better. And wages are rising faster than current inflation. But the problem that you allude to, Tara, is, is the fact that in a post-pandemic world, prices generally speaking, are about 19% above where they were before the pandemic. And so whether it's houses, whether it's cars, whether it's the cost of money, all of that is elevated, relatively speaking. And so people yeah, have felt this post-pandemic sticker shock. The rate of inflation has slowed dramatically. We're, we're getting close to the Fed's 2% target by most measures. And the prices of a lot of different things have have come back down, whether grocery bills have slowly started to ease the price of gasoline, for instance, is, you know, back where it was before the pandemic. But this unease is is understandable, given that one fact that the, the, the overall price level is elevated. The reality, though, when you look at the numbers and the numbers are the numbers and people can, you know, argue that every administration cooks the books. But 
we're living with the agreed upon lie. No matter what we do, every administration calculates the unemployment rate, the inflation rate, and all these different metrics in the same way. And it's done by career bureaucrats in Washington that aren't particularly partisan. So we have better than 2% growth going into 2024. The unemployment rate has been below 4% for over two years. That's not happened since the 1960s. Minority mm. unemployment is at a historic low. Um, you have women's unemployment at a his, near a historic low, and you have uh, business formation at a record high. So when you look at all of that, the, the economy is, is pretty much humming on all cylinders by every metric. Now, people's views of it are also colored by their political affiliation. You see Democrats, mm. generally speaking, liking the economy much, much better than Republicans do. And that's something that really has been true ever since the end of the Clinton era. That, that the view of the economy has been colored by whether or not your party is in the White House. The one thing that hasn't really taken effect is that the, pro the prices of things, they're starting to go down, but they haven't really quite gone down. And I'm wondering, you know, how much control does the president have over this? Because I'm sure the companies are thinking, okay, we had to increase our prices because of inflation, right? Yeah. And now that inflation is going down, our margins are bigger. So why would we ever lower the price of our eggs, for example. Eggs are down 50%, by the way, but but that it, nobody seems to pay attention to that. Um, but you're right. Profit margins are being held where they were when inflation was higher. And so this, this notion of greedflation, and I hate to use that word, but corporations are holding their profit margins where they were. So something like 53% of the price increases that people experienced in the third and fourth quarters of last year were the result of companies holding the line on prices, even though their input costs have come down. So if those margins came back down, people would invariably feel that inflation was less of a problem right now than, than it appears to be. We're a liberal economy, so there's really nothing a president can do. They can't call up, you know, I don't know, name some company that is probably Anything. holding their prices. Yeah. But I think automakers are holding their prices up a lot higher still. Well, they also have another problem, which is more having to do with the Federal Reserve than it has to do anything to do with the president. So the cost of money has gone from zero uh, during the depths of the pandemic. And also, you know, we had zero inflation, uh, zero interest rate policy for, for quite a long period after the great financial crisis. Cost of money was incredibly low. So if you were trying to buy or lease a car anywhere from 2009 to 2020 or 21 even, you know, your interest rate was slightly above zero or you were getting mm -hmm. big incentives to purchase or lease a car. Now that money factor is seven or 8%. So the cost mm -hmm. of leasing a car or buying a car is considerably higher. So there's big sticker shock there. Same is true with residential real estate because mortgage rates are above 7%, where- So it's, yeah, it's interest rates that are hurting yeah. people more so than the sticker, you think? And that has nothing to do with President Biden. Right. Or any president for that matter. So it's the Fed is presumably an independent institution that sets the price of money based on the economic environment in which we find ourselves. You know, Trump would often tweet at the Fed and be like, do this, lower the interest rates or like when they were at historic lows, by the way, you know, he would tweet, <laughs> oh, the stock market is rising. It's doing amazing. Here's the question, though. How much does the stock market actually impact middle class voters? Well, not nearly as much as, as one would think. I mean, I think, you know, this is by the same token, you know, home prices have gone up 40 percent 
since the pandemic. Right. And so middle-class voters have seen a real increase in the home equity value that they have. But they're not moving because they don't have, they can't get loans. They're not moving. So they're not tapping that equity, right? There's a housing shortage really because of it, right? About 5 million units short of demand. Yeah. And, and that's, again, when the Fed took rates from zero to now five and a quarter percent, and it's likely they'll start cutting rates a little later in the year and push mortgages to between seven and 8%, 90%, this is some Redfin data that's really interesting, 90% of mortgages are below 6%, 80% plus are below 5 60% are below 4 and over 20% are below 3 So we have this post-pandemic lockdown, if you will, in residential real estate. Nobody's going to move. Nobody's going to take a 25 or 3% mm. mortgage and go buy another house, smaller house at mm. 7 or 8%, get less for their money, pay more for right. it. And and downsize, you know, if you're retiring or if you're a first time home buyer, you're kind of priced out of the market. So until the Fed really dramatically lowers rates, which is going to happen over the course of the next couple of years, we have this problem, too. So it's cars and autos and people feel that a lot. And so that also tends to color their view. But again, the president doesn't set interest rate policy the federal reserve does but politically no one really cares and it seems like no, they blame the president been, anyway <laughs> yeah blame the, he, the buck stops there no matter what yeah. but politically i would think this is a disadvantage to younger people and these are the people that biden needs when to come out and vote for him if they feel like we can't even borrow you know we can't get a mortgage to buy our first house or we can't afford a mortgage that's not a great you know, that's not helpful for him. No, it's not helpful for him. And he's got other problems with, with young people, as, as, as you well know. And we talked about this when we were on Stephanie's mm -hmm. show around Christmas time is one, the messaging to young people has until recently been entirely absent. They're not just now taking to TikTok mm -hmm. uh, to talk about various issues that affect kids. So, okay. You think that wages are going to go up though? They are going up. I mean, they're running at about a four, four and a half percent annualized rate. We've seen in certain states- But like they Tampa, didn't match inflation originally and that was a problem. Yeah, but now they're surpassing inflation. So by the time of the election, do you think that people will feel even better when they go out to the polls? Yeah, I mean, barring you know some unforeseen catastrophe where energy prices mm -hmm. spike up and gasoline goes you know crazy, mm -hmm. or food prices turn around, or you know China attacks Taiwan and, and creates a global yeah. recession or worse, um, the economy should continue to chug along at this two two and a half percent rate. The unemployment rate is likely to stay at or below 4%, again, barring anything, you know, untoward. If the Federal Reserve raised rates again, it might throw us into a recession. That's unlikely. So right. yeah, the economy will be better. People will feel better. And I, I think to the extent that that redounds to President Biden's benefit, uh, there'll, there'll be some incremental improvement there. I'm not sure how much it'll boost his approval ratings, but it'll be better three, four, five months from now in the public side than it is now. And so do you think that's why people uh, on both sides of the aisle, while Republicans and now Democrats have lifted um, the issue of migration above the economy in terms of their priorities, because they are starting to feel better? Yeah, we and, and we see, you know, there's obvious intransigence on this, um, as dictated by former President Trump, not to do a deal on the border. Now, one of the crazy things about this is that um, and, and our friend Catherine Rampell from the Washington Post, who I think is maybe one of the most brilliant writers on the economy, addressed an, a CBO study that came out recently that just throws cold water on immigration, broadly speaking, being a net negative for the economy. It's actually a net positive. If we saw an influx of immigrants going forward at the same pace that we do now, the CBO projects that the GDP of this country would be $7 trillion larger 
and that the revenues of the federal government would be $1 trillion larger as well. And these are immigrants that would have a pathway to citizenship and would be paying taxes and all of that, right? Yeah, and, and it assumes that there's, you know, remediation at the border, that you get the, you know, you get more border control agents, you get more mm. legal ports of entry, that you get more judges who could adjudicate asylum claims and things like that. It would assume a rational, comprehensive immigration reform policy would be put into a place. Now, having said that, the, the majority of the increase in, in employment that we've seen has come from foreign-born workers. Um, which, again, is boosting the economy and holding down the unemployment rate and filling all those vacant jobs that we have for which there are fewer and fewer Americans over time. Yeah, because the Chinese right now in Asia, they are having an economic boom that's better than ours. No, but no, they're no, about no. to have a bust, no. right? Because they're, they're of, in the middle of a bust. They, they, China's been busted. Oh, it's already happening. It's already happening. They're, they're like a population, right? Well, they have a they have a population time bomb. In fact, the latest estimate that I saw suggests that China's population is going to go from 1.4 billion today to just over 500 million by 2100. Wow. That's an even bigger drop Crazy. than everybody thought. And right. they've got a property sector, which accounts for 30% of their GDP, which is imploding. They're not, we're, we're actually growing faster with, uh, and, and in, in better ways, if you will, than China is. They have some strength in their high tech sector, but broadly speaking, their economy is already imploding, whether they're willing to okay. recognize that publicly or not. Their mm -hmm. stock market peaked in 2007. A lot of people don't recognize that fact. That their, their market peaked in 2007. They had another rally in the 2015. Mm -hmm. They're still down 40% from their all-time high. And we're mm -hmm. hitting new highs every day in our stock market. So our GDP grew by 3%. And then in Europe, it grew by 0.8%. Yeah. Um, and so we're actually, our country is actually doing better than any other country in the world right now. Yeah, 100%. So we're growing faster with less inflation than Europe and other major economies. China's actually suffering through deflation, um, which is a separate problem for them. And so, and we're probably growing faster than than they are because they fudged their numbers. So yeah, right now, and it's funny, a couple of months ago, I had an interview with Tony Blair last summer. And he said, you know, Americans should take stock of the fact that this is the best economy and the, be and the strongest military in the world. And, and we, we probably should feel better about our situation when you look at places like Europe and the UK, China, than we actually do. But there's a feeling that during COVID, Europe did not do what we did. They did not write basically checks to everyone, blank checks. Trump did it and so did Biden. They did right. the same thing. And that created a lot of this inflation right now, correct? Some. I mean, it, it, you also, I mean, the supply chain disruptions that we saw were, were profound. I mean, the, the, the inability to, to get computer chips that would go into automobiles and that, that limited the available supply of cars or computers or other consumer goods. And that pushed up prices quite a bit. Yes, fiscal stimulus and interest rate reductions down to zero, you know, created inflation. But we've seen now that on the supply chain side, all of that's been completely reversed and the price of manufactured goods is actually falling. It's actually deflating right now. Services are sticky because there's still some revenge travel going on shockingly after a couple of years. And so there are some sticky prices in hospitality. We're also seeing some weird things in inflation that, that, are, that are not necessarily going to be around forever. Um, things like auto insurance going up, which accounted for the largest component of consumer prices advancing last month. And so the health insurance, which we know is already, you know, kind of sticky, uh, tuition, things like that, beyond the control of the Fed or the federal government have been going up at a faster than normal pace. And so that's something that is hard to control. 
and and overstates maybe some of the inflation that we've seen recently. But yeah, look at, at the margin, and maybe a little more than at the margin, fiscal stimulus played a big role. But the reason that we're growing faster than the rest of the world were those fiscal stimulus packages that came and and offset some of the rate increases that the Federal Reserve engaged in over the last eighteen you know to twenty months. Okay. I want to talk about the middle class. So I really want to get into it because, you know, the middle class is the background of the American society. It's been shrinking since the 1960s and the 1970s. And, you know, they see the rich getting richer and they're not, they don't seem to be really enjoying the impacts of the economy um, or at least the boom that we're experiencing right now. And I just wonder, you know, why is that? When are they going to feel it? Why don't they feel it right now? Are they feeling it and they don't even know it? <laughs> that's, that's an interesting way to ask the question. I, they feel it and not know it. Um, right. you know, have they been uh, economically lobotomized? But seriously, <laughs> no. I, well, the reason I ask that is because yeah. in August, the Biden campaign went out there and they were like, Bidenomics, Bidenomics, you should be feeling great. Bidenomics, Bidenomics. They, they had all of their cabinet secretaries out on the road, even yeah. Biden. In August, though, come on, everyone's on vacation. Why yep. are they talking about that? Regardless, they're out there and they're saying Biden saved us from a recession. It was coming and he stopped it and you should be very excited. And, and the reaction was actually pretty negative to the point where they no longer use the word Bidenomics. It's almost become like associated with Obamacare and how the Republicans were able to sort yeah, of- Yeah, time, except that in this last year, 21 million people signed up for the Affordable Care Act. Exactly. It's, it's hugely popular, but <laughs> they were able to brand it in a way that made it seem like a negative thing, probably also because the system broke when it first launched and it had a few glitches and yeah. it was a big political mess, but it got there and now it is very popular. Yeah. They couldn't gut it. They couldn't get rid of it, the Republicans. But regardless, politics is a very big part of this feelings people are going to the poll they're thinking like oh the elites screw them you know this bidenomics is garbage i'm not feeling it why are they feeling this way i, I i'm not entirely sure because when, when you look at when you, when you break down the various income groups right so in the last couple of years aside from the mega mega billionaires the the, the richest of the rich the elon musk the jeff bezos mm -hmm. and those folks whose whose stock prices have appreciated so much that they're now worth $200 billion a piece or thereabouts. The bottom 10% of all wage earners have actually seen faster growth in their income than the top 10% or, or any other cohort uh, in the economy. And so that, that's actually happened for a wide variety of reasons. And we've also seen job creation pick up in areas that are really interesting, like uh, the, the construction of manufacturing facilities for computer chips. The Chips and mm -hmm. Science Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, however poorly named, was an infrastructure and green energy transition program that's created a fair number of jobs, and they're generally high-paying jobs. So we've, we've seen um, some improvement in, in the lower decile. We had seen a lot more people come out of po poverty when the child credit uh, tax credit was, was given out uh, during the mm -hmm. pandemic, but then it was pulled back. And it's disappeared. Now we've seen more kids fall back into poverty, which is, which is in my mind, somewhat tragic because that program actually worked quite well and improved a lot of quite a number of people. And I think one could argue that wasn't the Democrats or this administration that killed that program. Republicans did. Um, but, but broadly speaking, with respect to Bidenomics, there has been consequential pieces of legislation, like I said, Ships and Science Act, which is helping us to onshore our high-tech manufacturing capacity the Inflation Reduction Act, which is if, if you live in, in and around New York, you've noticed 
uh, and, and at other parts of the country, you've noticed some infrastructure repair going on mm. that hasn't happened in quite a long time. But it's also kind of annoying at the same time. Well, yeah, look, but it beats the potholes that we had, you know, right. in my yeah, neighborhood right. a, about a year ago, there was, we had a pothole that was so large, you could break a tire in it. And then in the infinite wisdom of the state of or city, state of New Jersey, city of Englewood Cliffs, they filled half of it. Now, more recently, okay. when the infrastructure bill got passed, and this money started going back to road reconstruction and so on and so forth. They're also, by the way, replacing water pipes and things like that that have aged and, and that are no longer, you know, of any quality whatsoever. This is happening all around the country. And so I think it takes people some time to feel the benefits of these large programs that have put a fair number of people to work. So I, I don't mm -hmm. dispute that, that middle class, class Americans still feel the pain, particularly in, in areas that have been, you know, abandoned and have been abandoned now for 40 or 50 years. Okay. They're just not coming back. Right. And although, right. you know, Intel's building a chip facility in Ohio and, and you do see a lot of companies starting to build out manufacturing capacity. They're typically doing it more though in Sunbelt States, right to work States and places like that, where those people who are disenfranchised by the hollowing out of the middle class in our old manufacturing sector aren't necessarily benefiting from these new programs. Got it. Okay. So wages haven't really gone up. People got checks. They spent them. They wanted to continue living that way, obviously. Have I like have I missed anything on the middle class part of no, it? I would think? say the one thing I would say, if you want to talk a little bit more about wages, they actually have gone up. And and in select states, they've gone up a lot. I mean, California just boosted minimum wage to $25 an hour. Okay. And granted, that's problematic, I think, for some fast food companies. But um wages by and large are growing at the fastest clip that we've seen in quite a number of years. And so, and faster than inflation, at least for the last several months, if not the last year. And that's actually, that should be good news for individuals. And like you see it in the data, I mean, you see it in people, you know, going out and traveling mm. and spending on airfares where you, it's more expensive to eat out than it is to eat at home. So right. there's been a slight slowdown there, but that that's, I think also something that's going to wear off over time. So Biden ended up keeping a lot of Trump's tariffs and his restructured yeah. trade deal with NAFTA and Europe. And um, he kept the China tariffs. Why? Well, because China strategically is becoming increasingly adversarial, both in economic terms and in military terms. And so I, I was I never disagreed with the Trump administration strategically that China was going to be an economic and military mm. problem. I, I didn't think the, the bludgeon that they used in addition to the tariffs that they put on, but, you know, identifying certain industries and, and, and grappling with like the steel industry and a couple other industries. I didn't think necessarily tactically they were doing the right thing. At the end of the day, the U.S. has a very big strategic geopolitical challenge with China centered around Taiwan. Taiwan Semiconductor provides 90% of all the advanced microchips in the world. And so if they were to take over Taiwan, uh, there would be an enormous economic issue there, not to mention the fact that, you know, when it comes to freedom of navigation in the South China Sea, we have big military problems with potentially with China as well. So I think I don't think anyone necessarily disagreed that China needed to be dealt with more aggressively, mm -hmm. given that they flout international trade rules and they were doing things and cutting deals with countries that were effectively bribing them to come to China's side that President Biden should have done anything differently, uh, like rolling back the tariffs. I think going forward, there's going to have to be a much more nuanced and strategic view on the economic side, even as we tighten our relationships with East Asian countries, South Asian countries, 
from a geopolitical perspective and military perspective to ensure that China kind of stays, you know, not boxed in necessarily. We don't want to cage them, but we also want to constrain um, their assertiveness in certain parts of the world in order to keep something bad from happening down the road. Okay, so Trump's pitch to the voters is Biden's ruined the economy. Come back, you know, vote for me. It'll go back to the good old days, right? That's what his pitch is. It's empirically untrue, by the way. And 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 if you go back to the final three years of the Obama administration, and mm-hmm. I'm not pitching democratic policies by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just, and I wish people, and I hope people understand that I, I do policy analysis. I don't engage in personal preference when I'm talking about these things. The last three years of the Obama administration and the first three years of the Trump administration, economic growth and job growth were roughly the same. And and the fact that the unemployment rate fell below 4% under Trump was it went from 4.7 to about 3.5 after having gone from yeah. Yeah, 8% uh, during the great financial crisis down to 4.7 over the course of the Obama uh, administration. Now, We've got unemployment under 4% for over two years. That hasn't happened since the 1960s. Job creation under President Biden is considerably larger than under President Trump. Wages growing faster than inflation. And our post-pandemic world, again, the U.S. is growing faster with less inflation than the rest of the world. That's the data. Um, How people feel about it, how people interpret it is something entirely different. When, When President Trump says that it was better then, it's just empirically untrue. It was fine up until the pandemic, but it wasn't mm. greater than any other period that we've had. Certainly wasn't better than the 90s, certainly wasn't better than the 80s. Uh, and in many ways, this last couple of years that we've had are, are better than even some of those. And do you think we we're really heading towards a recession like Larry Summers said we were? Oh, God. <laughs> I wish Larry would just stop speaking for you know a couple of years because he's been dead wrong on almost everything having to do with the economy. Um, since the pandemic, when he said when we're coming out that we were going to have inflation. He was the Secretary of Treasury under President Obama. He was, and he was deputy. He was also Secretary of Treasury under President Clinton following Bob Rubin for mm. a period of time as well. Um, so, so Larry came out saying that because of all the stimulus that we had, because interest rates were at zero, as the economy rebounded, we faced a 1970s style scenario in which inflation was simply going to run out of control as it did leading up to 1980, where inflation was 13%, unemployment was 11 interest rates went to 20%, what we called stagflation at the time. And instead, what happened was inflation, because supply chains normalized, began to fall faster than anyone anticipated. Fed took rates to 5%. That largely did the trick. We're on, the, we're on our way back to 2% inflation. And he's been wrong. Yes, can we have a recession? Sure. If the Federal Reserve were going to raise interest rates again, or we had some sort of external mm-hmm. shock, or the commercial real estate sector in the U.S. becomes so, um, you know, deeply um, 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 hurt by rising interest. Or a credit card crisis, frankly, if people continue yeah. to spend at the level that they were spending when they were receiving stimulus checks. And look, credit card and auto uh, loan defaults are at levels that are consistent with a recession. Um, mm. and they're both in the mid to high single digits. And, and that's not great. And credit card interest rates, irrespective of what the Federal Reserve has done, are extraordinarily and unfairly high. They average about 30%. That, that, that really shouldn't happen. I don't know how we can legislate that away, but somebody ought to do something about that. But I, you know, a recession recession, like something that's going to be really bad, the, the ingredients just aren't there unless the Fed were going to raise rates some more, or again, unless commercial real estate implodes and, and affects the financial sector to such an extent that, you know, it weakens the economy. Right now, it looks like we're going to grow 2% and change this year 
And again, unless something untoward happens, we're not necessarily headed for a recession. And even if we have one, it would be pretty mild by historic standards, at least so far. So just to end this conversation, I've learned a lot. I hope everyone else has as well. And I hope they're feeling a little bit more upbeat, you know, no gloom and doom. Um, Democratic strategists, the White House, they're constantly saying, don't worry. All the indicators say everything's going great. People are not feeling it right now, but they will around the time of the election because there's a bit of a lag. Yeah. Why is there a lag? And do you agree with them that this will happen? Yeah. I mean, there's always been a lag between, you know, things getting really good. Most people feel most optimistic at the top of a cycle, right? Then, then they think that it's never going to end. Like in, in my experience over now, the last 40 years. Do you years, mean a presidential cycle or just a cycle? No, economic growth? cycle. Economic okay. cycle. So, I mean, if you want to talk about a presidential cycle, a four-year cycle, what happens typically is the third year is the best year for the stock market. Fourth year is the second best. And generally uh-huh. speaking, towards the end of a presidential cycle, whether coincidence or not, the Federal Reserve is usually cutting rather than raising interest rates, although George H.W. Bush would argue quite the opposite um, for his period in, in, in office. Look, I, people, it takes time for people to feel good. And given everything that we went through, the profound impact, and I think mm. people underestimate just how bad they still feel because of the pandemic. Look, we lost 1.2 million people. We went through right. an inflation shock. Interest rates went up. Houses became unaffordable. People changed the way in which they worked and lived. That was a profound event, almost as profound as, as, as a war experience. And so I think psychologically, there was a lot of scarring. And we see that with mental health crises. We see this with suicides. We see it with the opioid epidemic that, you know, kind of all all these things coalesced at the same time. So I think it takes time for people to psychologically recover from these things and feel comfortable. I mean, it's hard to feel as comfortable today as you did pre-pandemic, right? Just just the Mm -hmm. scars that are left behind. And it's happened in post-war environments too, um, where, where it takes people a long time to feel okay. And so I think that's still part and parcel of, of, of why people feel the way they do, given that the economy is, is doing, you know, by every metric that we look at very well. And so, yes, by election time, should they be feeling better? You, you would think so, unless something comes between, <laughs> you know, comes, comes in the next couple of months and, and changes that calculus. But mm. from my perspective, and, and, and again, you know, I've been, through, I've, I've not only been doing this for 40 years, I'm almost 63 years old. I've lived through a lot of cycles and I know which ones felt worse and I know which ones felt better. This one right. feels pretty good. And, and I think probably ultimately will feel pretty good, again, depending on one's political persuasion. Do you think that's why messaging is so important right Absolutely. now? If you look at the, you look at the polls- And the right- leadership. I think that's what I'm sensing from people is that they don't sense, a, they feel a lack of leadership from the Democratic side, at least from Biden explaining and maybe the state of the union will change that when he's actually able. well yeah well we'll know soon right i mean and, and, right. and he's got a lot to talk about there but yeah messaging has been horrible i mean there's no doubt about it that they have not framed it in such a way uh that it's advantageous to them well they were facing a lot of resentment from people when they would go out there and say everything's great and people were like what yeah. i don't feel that way so they realized they had to acknowledge and you hear it in the, from the messaging we know it doesn't feel great, but we promise it will get better. And they need to validate. I, I know you look at all these political polls as well. There's two things that are really interesting. Number one, when you ask people about the economy, they think it's not great. When you ask them <laughs> about their own personal situation, they tell you it's fine. 
right? So this is true in the University of Michigan, Michigan consumer sentiment numbers. This is true right. in a lot of different sentiment readings that we get about consumers. When you look at charts and polls of how people feel based on their political affiliation, Republicans feel hor about, horrible about the economy. Democrats feel relatively good. The last time we saw people of both parties feel good about the economy was during the Clinton years. And then it began mm. to break over whoever was in the White House. So if your party was in power, you felt fine. If your party was out of power, you felt horrible. And that's been true now for almost 30 years. And how do independents feel? It's hard to tell. I mean, <laughs> yeah, they're know, the ones who decide we'll these elections. Out. And it may not be the economy that turns independence anyway, right? It might be a whole wrap. It might social, be a migration issue. Immigration, abortion, LGBTQ issues, voting rights. You know, I'm not a cheerleader for the economy. It's just I try to go by the numbers. You know, the numbers were fine during the Trump years. They weren't astounding, as the former president liked to say. Mm -hmm. they, were, they were on average. They were on par with what Obama did. You know, the Reagan and Clinton years were very, very strong. And, and this, this cycle, if you look at the metrics that we look at, you know, which is unemployment, inflation coming down to normal levels, uh, business formation, uh, all these different things that measure economic vigor. The U.S. at the moment is the envy of the world. It's just been a very tough sell. Ron, thank you. This yeah, was pleasure. Thank illuminating. You. I feel like I've gotten smarter. I hope listeners have too. Um, <laughs> if you want Ron on again, send me an email at tara at puck.news and we'll get him back in a few months telling us how we should be feeling. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as the resident uh, economic psychiatrist of the it's, country. It's just the whole thing. It's like, how are you supposed to feel versus what is the reality for each person is different, right? Yeah. And look, you know, there was all this talk about a vibe session, right? Yeah. That doesn't exist, by the way. For, for those of us who, who, you know, apply the economic trade, you don't have psychological recessions. You have real recessions and you have real mm -hmm. recoveries and, and people feel the way they feel for a wide variety of reasons. but you don't get a recession because people feel bad and then still spend money. Those are just wildly incongruent ideas. It's called retail therapy. Okay. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Ron. I appreciate thanks, it. That was another episode of Somebody's Gotta Win. I'm your host, Tara Palmieri. I want to thank my producers, Christopher Sutton and Connor Nevins. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it, and share it with your friends. If you like my reporting, go to puck.news slash Tara Palmieri and sign up for my newsletter, The Best and the Brightest. You can use the discount code Tara20. If you have questions and comments, you can email me at tara at puck.news. I'll be back on Thursday.